0: Hello. In terms of my time, my work will start with the 140th Olympiad, so wrote the historian Polybius at the beginning of his history. Before this time, things happened in the world pretty much in sporadic fashion, because every incident was specific from start to finish to the part of the world where it happened. But ever since then, history has resembled a body in the sense that incidents in Italy and Libya and Asia and Greece are all interconnected, and everything tends toward a single outcome. That is why I have made this period the starting point of my treatment of world events. With me to discuss Blivius and his work is Steele Brand. He is professor of history at King's College in New York City and author of Killing for the Republic, Citizen Soldiers and the Roman Way of War, which he and I discussed in episode 124. Steele, welcome back to Historically Thinking.
1: Al, thanks for asking me to come back. and, and, And it's great to be back.
0: So we've been thinking about this for a while. Uh, this is part of our sort of ongoing uh, little series on uh, historians, great historians, or, or great histories. Sometimes bad historians write great or important histories, but uh, we have, I don't think we talked about one of those yet. Um, but let's start with the, the facts of Polybius. Who is he? Or where is he from? Because um, his bio is, to me, is almost as interesting as the book itself. Polybius would
1: appreciate that you introduced him that way because that, that's the kind of historian that he wanted to be, someone whose life was was as, as interesting or at least fit into the history that he was going to talk about. So he comes from Megalopolis. This had become a more
0: important city in the third century. He's probably born around the end of the third century. We could roughly we- say – just stop right there because megalopolis uh, we should talk about its origins because that seems to me important to even understanding who polybius is
1: yeah we will right 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 and um so he's born in Megalopolis, probably around 200. So, what is Megalopolis? You know, it sounds like something out of a, uh, yeah. out of a, it's like Gotham or yeah, exactly. uh, something out of DC Comics. It's basically it's a city that's founded uh, with the assistance of Epaminondas. This is uh, one of the generals famous for setting back Spartan hegemony in the fourth century. So you've got this long period of, of. Uh, or brief period, I should say, of Spartan hegemony after Athens had had a good run uh, until the end of the Peloponnesian War in the 5th century. So, it's founded 371, 368, and it's a kind of federal experiment. It's supposed to balance out Sparta, which is on the Peloponnesus. Megalopolis is in this valley in a really, really harsh and mountainous region. That's important because it kind of defines the kind of virtues that are important to some of these leaders in the Achaean League. Okay, so what's the Achaean League? Well, the Achaean League is a league that's established, uh, again, kind of like a counter to uh, Macedon in the north and other leagues in uh, in Greece, most notably the Aetolian League. Now, the Achaean League uh, brings in Megalopolis under the leadership of a truly stellar statesman, Eratus. And uh, Polybius talks about uh, Aratus at length, but uh, Michaelopoulos is brought in around 235. And the Achaean League, uh, um, Polybius is is really enthusiastic about the Achaean League. He he says it's it's one of the greatest freedom-loving and democratic institutions that's ever existed. It's an assembly of member states it kind of has a mixed constitution. It's got a federal general and a cavalry commander. These are the executives. They also have a federal assembly of male citizens, and these are balanced by a third party. This is a federal council. Hmm. Uh, Polybius describes that, uh, he, he says they enjoy equal representation and full local autonomy. And this is really, this uh, his setting in Megalopolis, more broadly speaking, in the Achaean League, really
0: establishes the background of Polybius the man and Polybius the historian. So I should say when he talks about in a later book, when he talks about the Roman constitution and talks about it as a mixed constitution, the temptation for a historian is to look at it. Oh yeah, he knows a lot of Aristotle. Uh, but in fact, this is his life experience. This is his family experience. This is his, the heritage of a city.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and it defines him. And it's really important that we understand that because it's not just something that takes place in the mind mm-hmm. of uh, the man. It's not something mm-hmm. that happens in the way we would describe it today. The ivory tower. It's something that he was habituated to appreciate, understand, and sympathize with from a very, very early age.
0: And in fact, think was far superior to any other system. I mean, he is. He talks about the need for historian to be um, unbo- to to uh, chastise friends as well as to pr- and praise enemies. But in fact, it's clear that. If he believes in one thing, it's in it's in the superiority of a mixed constitution, in the superiority of, of, of a kind of republic.
1: That's correct. And for him, I think we could even go back a little bit further in in his thinking of his in his metaphysical mindset. And this mm-hmm. is where Plato and Aristotle play a role. He really thinks there are higher standards to which men are beholden. And it's these higher standards that a republic can bring out, and these are all the things that are important for Polybius that I'm sure we'll cover uh, about being a good statesman, about having good character, having integrity, being pious is very important to him, having good faith, things of that nature. What
0: uh, and we should? What does he mean by pious?
1: Piety for Polybius is linked to uh, good faith. It's linked to justice. So piety is that which a man does to the gods, or it's the it's his treatment of the gods, his fidelity to the gods. And I, I again, he's probably pulling from, he's got an education, it seems, at least from some sort of commonplace books that would have included the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. And when he's thinking uh, of the gods, he's thinking of a divine system of justice that's not like Zeus arbitrarily zapping people with lightning, which is what a lot of people think about the Greek gods today. It's not the crazy mythologies. It's this idea of a uh, an ordered realm and a divine uh, notion of goodness, perfection, justice, uh, virtue—all the things that we value, all the things that give us stability and peace—and so, so the, a man owes the
0: gods. The, Go ahead. Very much the territory of that—the last dialogue that Socrates has uh, that Plato sets as Socrates is going to his trial. Now I forget that I blank on the name of the dialogue, but anyway, this is what 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 do we owe the gods, and and why are how are the gods just? Right, right. And this is the apology. And then
1: Plato in his laws describes how you can't bribe the the gods to be unjust. And the gods do care about the activities of mankind. And I think if you understand Plato and you understand how Polybius – maybe he's read Plato. Maybe it's only a commonplace book that's using Plato. Polybius really believes in that metaphysical mindset that he's picked up from uh, thinkers like Plato.
0: So um, I should say just uh, briefly, a little teaser that we're going to be talking in a couple weeks after uh, listeners hear this. We'll be talking with Paul Cartledge about his new book about Thebes. And we'll be talking a lot about Epaminondas uh, and the great campaign to uh, destroy Sparta. Uh, We'll also also point you back to episode 98, uh, where we talked with Christian Cameron, a historical novelist, who is now writing an entire series dedicated about Philip Poyman. Uh, who is uh, one of Polybius's heroes? Can we talk about briefly about the Achaean League and its trajectory, and which leads us to how Polybius ended up in um, Rome?
1: Yeah, so I think the best way to look at this is uh, okay. So, what is the biography of Polybius, and how does he fit into this broader history? And. Uh, with statesmen like Philip Wayman and Aratus So uh, he, like I said, he's probably educated. Uh, we don't know much about it for 20 years. But then by the time we get to around 182 or so, he's given a pretty big distinction. Polypius is asked to carry the funeral urn of Philip Wayman. Uh, One of the greatest statesmen, also from Megalopolis, their family friends, it seems like, his father, uh, Polybius' father, that is, knew Philippoyman, and like Cortus, this is the father of Polybius, becomes uh, Astratagus as well. Now, Philippoyman is famous because he had adopted some of the Macedonian fighting tactics. He had warred with Sparta, and he had really put Sparta in its place as a part of the Achaean League against Sparta as well, and this is what distinguishes Hmm. Philippoyman. Now, uh, the next major event in Plebeius' life is that he's appointed to a very distinguished embassy in Egypt that doesn't actually get carried out. But we know that that's around 181 or so. We know that about 10 years later, he is elected as a cavalry leader. This is very important because he's probably slated to be a stratagos in the future. So he's rising within this Achaean system. He's following in the tradition of these great statesmen, his own father, full Aratus of Sicyon before that. And then... Fate or fortune, we should say, or TK as he would say, uh, takes over. And this is uh, this is the war uh, of the Macedonians, the third Macedonian War with Rome, uh, also called the War of Perseus. This is a really critical time. He's just been appointed, Plebus has just been appointed to a position of, of leadership, and Greek statesmen are divided on how to engage in this. Do we side with our traditional ally, oftentimes Macedon, or do we side with the rising power of Rome? Well, Achaea doesn't navigate this perhaps as well as they could have, but Polybius himself personally does a very good job. So he's grafted into uh, the Roman system in a really interesting way. We know that in 169, he's sent to go help out some of the Roman commanders, and he's got some delegates delicate negotiating to do. He's a very, very good diplomat. He's got to work between a couple of Roman commanders. We know that he ingratiates himself somehow to Aemilius Paulus. Aemilius Paulus is the man who wins the battle of Pydna and defeats the Macedonian king Perseus and finishes this war. Now, the Achaeans- have been accused by one of their own numbers, a guy by the name of um, Callicrates, mm. that, that a number of these leaders have been said, "Hey, he, Callicrates, he suck ups. He sucks up to the Romans." and says, "Hey, look, they're not really with you." And he basically accuses a number of his colleagues. Yeah, the, the guy is loathed throughout Greece, but Rome mm. listens, and so they exile a thousand uh, Achaeans, and one of these is Polybius. However. Polybius is brought into the household of Aemilius Paulus. More importantly, he's brought into the household of the two sons of Aemilius Paulus, who happened to be adopted out. This was a common practice by uh, Roman families who had a lot of sons. These two sons are adopted out into two of the other famous families uh, the family of Quintus Fabius Maximus, the Fabii Maximi, and then the family uh, of the Scipios. And the Scipios, uh, it's, it's this famous figure by the name of Scipio Aemilianus who befriends Polybius. Polybius is kind of a tutor to him as, as he's a hostage, but he also becomes good friends. They love going hunting. They love hanging out. He goes with Emilianus in a number of campaigns. So he's uniquely placed to understand not only Greek politics, not only uh, Greek history, how things actually function, but in the second half of his life, really the, the last two-thirds of his life, he's placed... With the leading families, the three of the leading families in Rome as a hostage, where he's actually a friend and a tutor to all of these, uh, some of the most important men in Rome. And he can see what's going on, not only do that, but participate in what is going on uh, as Rome slowly begins to take over, I should say, rapidly begins to take over the Mediterranean.
0: So he's not a slave. Uh, He's not not, uh, chattel. No, What's, no. So what? What is the status of a hostage? Then I mean, he's no. a hostage. He's an exile, um, but he's exiled to Rome. He just—he's. I guess he has to stay out of Achaia. Uh, Corre- is, is the interdict.
1: Correct. Well, this is this is a. First of all, we should say this is a very, very long tradition. It has ancient Near Eastern precedents. You have the, the the Egyptians are doing this sorts of things with Canaanite kings, mm-hmm. and Anatolian kings are doing this, and and with the Hittite Empire. But the idea is, we take uh, important sons or important figures, we take them kind of as prisoners, but it's a very, very nice sort of. Uh, arrangement of being a prisoner. And then we take them and uh, for the good behavior of the leaders back home. And mm. basically, the idea is if you don't do things well back home, then we may mistreat or uh, or do something else to the hostages. That usually doesn't happen. What does happen is they sort of start becoming Romanized. Now, this is that, – that's about as rosy as we can look at this. What mm-hmm. really happens to a lot of these guys is they end up being kind of scattered throughout some houses in southern Etruria. Once again, that's not a bad place to be, right? This mm-hmm. is a common vacation spot today. But uh, Polybius is unique because he gets pulled into the the orbit of these three families. And he is the, – the two sons, Quintus Fabius Maximus, Scipio Aemilianus, both of them uh, become his friends and they say, we want to give him freedom of movement. This is granted officially – And now he can do a whole host of things that a lot of the other hostages can't do. The other hostages, well, 17 years later, they're finally released. This should not have taken this long. It's not terribly just. And only 300 of them are still alive. Now, they weren't executed, but they had died off. And Polybius is one of those 300.
0: So – At some point, with uh, all this experience, he decides that he is ideally suited to write a history. Um, Maybe we should begin with why he believes that a historian should be like him.
1: Well, he's got this idea that a historian has to be a man of action. We know that he's written uh, probably in the 160s, uh, some sort of uh, a book on full appointment, maybe he'd written it earlier. We know at some point he writes a book on tactics. But of course, the book that is most famous, the book that we have uh, the most of the, uh, today is The Histories. And in this, he's got a number of very, very long passages describing what a historian needs to be like. So he is the n- number one opponent of of the armchair historian who has never experienced war or politics. In fact, he's got a whole book that is an extended critique of Timaeus. And this is yeah. interesting because he's basically writing part two uh, to Timaeus's part ones. Timaeus has like a history up to a certain point. Uh, then Polybius picks up that history. But he says, no, no, Plato has got his philosopher kings, right? We want kings to be philosophers or philosophers to be kings. Well, we need historians to be the kinds of men who perform shining deeds of courage they need uh, historians have to be men who have a real taste for the kinds of things that they're writing about he also has to be interdisciplinary mm-hmm. so plebe is gaining all of these experiences before during and after he writes his histories and that gives him the ability to talk about historiography geography geometry theology, Cryptology, there's the famous Polybian code, mm-hmm. hydrodynamics, geometry, mathematics, music, all these different kinds of things that most historians today would say, man, I don't need to know that. I mean, I've <laughs> got to focus on my little niche. And Polybius would say, no, no, you've got to know as much as possible and experience as much as possible.
0: Uh, he is uh, – I mean, he starts trash-talking other historians as early as, as book one, chapter four, two. <laughs> yes, um, he does. He is uh, – he's one of those people that makes the American historical a review or the Women Mary Quarterly or whatever it is, Speculum makes them it makes it a much more interesting place. Just uh, a lot of grievances are aired and and there's uh, there's black smoke rising from people's ears. That's kind of Polybius with other historians. Yeah,
1: well, and it, what's interesting is sometimes one gets the sense that he, he he's very he criticizes historians who criticize other historians, but he <laughs> himself can be the most critical of these historians. On the whole, he's pretty he's pretty fair, he's pretty unbiased, it's com- especially compared to other uh, historians in ancient history. But but he does fall prey to some of his own criticisms.
0: He um, he he does say um, that he has a sort of standard of. Uh, shall we say that of what Nozick called that noble dream of objectivity. Let me, let me read um, this. He says, animal is completely useless if it loses its eyesight. And in the same way, history without truth has as little educational value as a yarn. That's kind of a weird translation, Uh, just a, a tall tale. Maybe that is why a historian should not hesitate either to condemn his friends or praise his enemies and should not worry about praising and blaming the same people at different times. After all, it is, is impossible for men of action to go, to always get things right. As is unlikely that they will constantly go wrong, we have to stand back from their actions and assign the appropriate judgments and opinions in our works of history. You want to comment on that?
1: Yeah, here's what's here's what's great about Polybius' sense of the historian. He, he's one of these early guys who's he's, he's part political scientist and he's. He's historian. He understands a person has to be loyal to his friend. So this is this is the the passage that you just quoted, where he says, "But the historian has to be critical of his friend whenever his friend does wrong, and the historian also has to praise his enemy whenever his enemy does something well." So it's that that's obs- that obsession with uh, with the truth and for polybius the historian he's a really really simple and unadorned writer this is why some people criticize him even in his in his own day but uh he is obsessed with his history being austere and factual and not sensational several places he critiques the kind of sensationalism that drove a lot uh, of historical works Who there? You've got three kinds of historians. He says. He says. There's the historian who writes for pay. There's the historian who, who writes to display his rhetoric. And then there's the seeker of truth. The seeker of truth writes to benefit mankind by explaining the good. And most commentators, most modern scholars who approach Polybius say, "Geez, this guy did it. He was pretty." uh unbiased. He mm-hmm. criticizes his his friends. Uh Aemilius Paulus, he can he condemns Aemilius Paulus several times. He appreciates Rome several times. He condemns Rome. So simple, unadorned, factual, never sensational, focusing on the good and focusing on
0: that which is true. So his antecedents, um his great Antecedents as we think of them are two people we've talked about on the podcast before the Thucydides. And then before that Herodotus, um, he's, as you've just said, his style is very different from that of Herodotus, both in his Greek, but also the way that he approaches things. Um, people love Herodotus for his sort of gossipy chatty, sort of occasionally interjecting himself into things. Polybius doesn't do that. I mean, he does interject himself into things like criticize other people, but, um, Herodotus says, you know, uh, something like the guy who swam fifty leagues. I don't really believe that story. Um, But uh, how does certainly Thucydides seems to be an antecedent. Is that true, or is that just as? Because here's Thucydides. He's a general admiral of Athens. He's actually been there. He's done stuff. Uh, He's failed, Uh, and he decides to write also a sort of an epic history of the of the war. to what extent is is Polybius in, in, in debt to his two previous uh, Hellenic um, predecessors? Oh, he certainly
1: realizes that he's part of a tradition, and we've got a very well established historical tradition. You've mentioned them: there's Herodotus, Thucydides, Xenophon. He himself is going to he's going to cite a number of other uh, authors that uh, the, that had written Timaeus, uh, being one of them. Uh, He's also indebted to the Greek philosophers. We talked about Plato and Aristotle, but there are descendants of Plato and Aristotle, different schools of the cynics, the Stoics, the skeptics. He's roughly familiar with some of these emerging traditions. This is why moderns I think are correct to compare. Uh, Polybius to other failed generals in history who kind of fall back on uh, historical writing as a, a new mode of life. Thucydides is one of these. You've got Josephus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't be wrong for modernists also to kind of compare him to Indiana Jones. I mean, so <laughs> there are lots of models, both ancient and modern, that he fits into. And he knows that he's a part of this tradition. And he's very he's conscious of this, which is why he says more than any of these other historians about what does it mean to write history? He's very concerned about present history so he doesn't spend time with Thucydides or Herodotus as uh, uh, like he does spending time with his contemporary historians uh some of whom he appreciates but many of whom he likes to critique
0: it's uh, i i realize even in book 1 you get a sense of all the lost works of ancient, of ancient uh, literature i could add many more like he's referring to Philinus and Quintus Fabius Pictor yeah mm-hmm. uh, which I I'm sure that you would love to have a uh, complete text of both cuz you don't
1: yeah, well, so there's this there's this this movie, I think National Treasure where they discover the uh oh, the treasures the last the lost right. library of Alexandria. Yeah, yeah. And every time I see that scene I think, "Oh my gosh, the all the the papyrus scrolls that would be in there, that have all of these books." Yeah. Uh, who, I don't care about the gold, but oh, the knowledge. You're right. There's so much history that has been lost. And this is even true with Polybius. Yeah. We have a fraction of Polybius. We really only have five
0: or six complete or near complete books and that's it you know there's um there's that library in pompeii uh full of carbonized uh, scrolls which might be was it caesar's father-in-law's i I forget the connection um and there's this new procedure that this uh, chap at university of kentucky blanking on his name has just come up with to sort of uh, using uh, x-ray techniques to unroll a scroll without ever opening it Mm -hmm. um you just, I'm just afraid that, that one of those libraries in Pompeii is filled with like uh, cookbooks. <laughs> Not that that <laughs> well, would be a bad thing. They well, certainly well, like, are. I mean,
1: this is, there are. There are books out that have copies that, of these cookbooks. And this is really important because – I'm going to just take a, a quick digression describe ancient writing. So a yeah, papyrus please. is a really, really tricky thing. Uh, and we know this particularly from some of the oldest papyrus scrolls, which of course come from Egypt. So you've got a, a you know papyrus that you make. I've been to Egypt. I've actually seen them make this stuff. It's a fascinating process. And then you take some kind of oil or wood, you mash it up, mix it with water, and there's your ink. And it actually sticks pretty well because it's all organic. So it doesn't dissolve uh, the, the papyrus, which is sort of like our paper. But then you roll up the scroll. We don't get books until the middle of the first millennium AD. Well, the problem with these papyrus Skulls, unlike clay tablets, which hey, if there's a fire, yeah, they're twice baked. That means they're they're in good shape. You know, we're gonna get them, which is why we have so much from the ancient Near East. Papyrus skulls really, really fragile. They and they also are subject to decay. But what usually ends up happening with a papyrus scroll is you lose, because think about how you would roll something up, you lose the inside. Uh, the the inner part of that what you've rolled on the outside so you'll have all these stories where we don't have the beginning and we don't have the end but we have the middle and so it, you know then people argue about well what in the world happened so this is a very very cumbersome process to write on a papyrus scroll than to read or preserve and keep a papyrus scroll and it's something we just don't appreciate as much in today's digital age
0: well let's let's focus on that before we get into some of the the meat of the of the of the book it's a big book in a in a Oxford uh, paperback um, how would he write such a thing in 200 bc uh, i mean how do you go about you can't there's no printing press uh, someone will reflect and how do you distribute your history in in in, the, in that period um i know lots of things were written on wax tablets obviously it's impossible to write the polybys history in wax tablets you have to put it on scrolls how are they how does he write it and how is it distributed
1: Well, I described a little bit how the process of writing would go in terms of like what are the materials that they're using. Uh, You're going to have to spend some time. Remember, you're going to have to spend most of your time writing in the daytime. So we can't, there are very few night owls uh, in the uh, ancient world compared to today because it's all going to be done when there's natural lighting. And then once he's written this, they're going to distribute them. If you look at Cicero, for example, Cicero writes a lot about how uh, he's distributed his work, so maybe he'd make a copy, but then he'd release it. And you know, you got to be nervous when you start to release your works because you have one, you know, maybe two copies, maybe none. You're, you're getting it out there, uh, which it needs to get out there. But then it starts to be copied by copyists, uh-huh. and uh, you know, we know that he, people usually release earlier books. That's why they're releasing these books, and that's why. Uh, we think we, that's why we have the earlier books of Polybius almost complete because these had been released a little earlier for certain reasons. They gained more traction; more people were reading them. You don't have many people who are literate, but the elites, uh, both in Greece and in Rome, are literate. And so these, uh, there are enough that are distributed. These manuscripts that are ch- distributed, and then they can be copied uh, in later periods of history. Usually, what we have are medieval copies of these ancient texts. Sure. So
0: the- it, it, that's interesting. I didn't realize this. So uh, is a book of Polybius then – he writes it on on more than one scroll, one assumes, and then he sends it out. Uh, it's so it's almost serialized in a way?
1: It's almost – yeah. Think about kind of like a 19th century uh, fictional book like sure. the Cana Monte Cristo where they're releasing them in, in, in little segments. Like I said, one of the best places because he's written so much about this is Cicero, and he's he's writing his friend saying, "Well, have you received my manuscript yet?" And I've got this portion done, and and uh, that's the way it would work. And you know, presumably they've got you know copies of these things that they're keeping for themselves as well. But you know, one or two bad fires, and we've you can destroy a lot of precious information that you'll never get back.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, look at all the we don't have the first parts of Livy, right? I mean, that's uh there there are lots of things that are missing in in classical history yeah we've got the so we've got the first 10 books but not
1: not uh, right. but not, not the, the following 10 then we've got the 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 Punic Wars and why do we have the Punic Wars because more people wanted to read about the Punic Wars the the Polybius or Livy's writing and uh, about the Punic Wars that that decade those 10 books were really really wanted, everyone wanted to know everyone also wanted to know about the origins of Rome so you sort of missed the middle period <laughs> and, this is, this is the fate of so many different books, particularly of Libby and Polybius. And with Libby, it's even more tragic. There's even less that we have of what Libby wrote.
0: So what, So, it would seem then based on uh, – uh, what do we know about his reception history um, in the first um, – during the Republic and then into the Empire? Well, we know he's, he's targeted two <laughs>
1: groups of historians. He, he's concerned with Roman statesmen who are rising to power. And then just concerned with Greek statesmen trying to figure out how to deal with the rising Roman power. So this is going to be distributed to those groups, uh, and we know it gains traction. It's It sticks... Uh, probably with both groups. This is why we have the manuscripts. Others might be more uh, forgettable. Uh, Felinus, you'd mentioned to him, he was pro-Carthaginian. Maybe the reason that he, we don't have much of what uh, he wrote is because he was pro-Carthaginian and Carthage lost, right? Mm-hmm. So a little bit of this is this uh, taiki, uh, Fortuna, that we opened up with. That fortune just doesn't smile on certain historians because of the way that history works out. Uh, unfortunately we've got a we've got a good run for Polybius especially for those first six books but then after that we lose most uh, of the rest of, of his books uh, after book six we just have fragments that remain and the reason why here if we can get just to the uh, what's the reception after the classical world the reason why is that you've got Livy Plutarch uh, Tacitus they're using, parts of Polybius uh, they're using manuscripts that had been out there but then when uh, the Roman Empire collapses in the West you've got Byzantine historians were very happy that they've copied a number of aspects uh, a number of sections or excerpts of Polybius but they're doing it in these commonplace books so they're writing a book on strategy so they take mm-hmm. sections of Polybius and they repeat them and they get rid of the rest mm-hmm. and so on the one hand we're glad you kept it but on the other hand they chop it up yeah. so they're kind of brutal at the same time and they're preserving uh, some of this history. And it's not until the Renaissance that we have our first Latin translation, not very good in the 15th century. And then we've got the Greek text that's been, that gets picked up and by the end of the, the 16th century we've got translations of what remains of Polybius in French, German, English. you've got an Elizabethan historian who's familiar with Polybius. Uh, and this is how we have it today.
0: So we'll uh, we'll get to that. Uh, hopefully, the, uh, briefly, because we're already we're already deep and in, into the time of this podcast, and we're uh, we've just gotten to like you know um, sort of my fourth uh, point that I wanted to hit, hit on. Um, let's talk about one of uh, Polybius's most influential um, one of the most influential parts of the book on military men uh, and women these days. I imagine is is the Battle of Cannae, um, which. Uh, You know, uh, on a previous podcast, we've discussed that might not, that influence might not always have been healthy. um, Since ever since people started reading this, they've wanted to recreate it. Um, When I read it, uh, I was interested to see that Polybius doesn't, uh, the lesson that Polybius takes from Kenai is not go and do likewise necessarily. It's something deeper than that. Um, Can we turn to that? Can you direct us to that?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing we have to understand is the idea that Polybius' writing, his objective in writing is we have to exemplify or show, showcase exemplars and paragons of the virtuous statesman. And so the entire lead up to the battle of Kenai, I think you can almost read it as in a character study of mm-hmm. the people involved. Now, he talks about he um, – because history exists to teach people how to be good statesmen and how to endure uh, the vicissitudes of fortune, he highlights famous Greeks and Macedonians like Aratus, like II, like the Macedonian king Philip V. But he also talks about Carthaginians, Hamilcar, Hasdrubal, and Hannibal. And he's got very good things to say about Hamilcar, Hasdrubal, and Hannibal. He has some critiques as well. But then he talks about some Roman commanders, Quintus Fabius Maximus, Scipio Africanus, Scipio Aemilianus, some of these famous people. And he pauses. This is what's really interesting about Polybius. He's constantly pausing to say, okay, this is what Hannibal did. So, for example, he, uh, in the earlier books, I think this is book uh, four through about book five, or book, I think it's book three to about book five. He talks about how Hannibal uh, maneuvered after taking the city of Saguntum. He goes uh, uh, over the Alps. He has these stirring victories against the Roman Republic. Public. And if you read, if you're reading Polybius, you're getting the sense, this is a character study of an incredible general, a general that Polybius says is one of the greatest statesmen, if not the greatest statesman. There's a couple of, f- of phrases that make it sound like he thinks Hannibal's the greatest statesman that's ever lived. He's the greatest general that's ever lived. And we get to this battle of Cannae, where yeah, I'm sure most of the readers are familiar with it if they've been listening to the show. But you've got the Romans throwing for the third time a huge Roman army at Hannibal and just the fact that he's outnumbered, perhaps as much as two to one. Uh, Hannibal uh, tactically outmaneuvers them on the battlefield. You've got the famous double envelopment. he basically surrounds a much larger force, and he annihilates them. It's, it's a brutal slaughter. Maybe as many as 70,000 people die.
0: It's just incredible. Now,
1: yeah, what's the lesson that we draw from this? It's not the, like you said, it's not the lesson, hey, you want to be great like Hannibal, do uh, this is what level. you do. Yeah. No, no. He says, okay. Now, Hannibal, this great character, we've just described him. The whole, we've been, we've, I've really engrossed you in his story, and yet he still loses. Why? Mm-hmm. And that's where we, we transition away from the Battle of Cannae to this major question. Why doesn't fortune crush Rome here?
0: Yeah, Let's, this, let, me, let me read a couple passages yeah. from you, and then you can, you can gloss them. He says, um, among the dead were Attilius, Attilius and Servilius. The previous year's consuls, men who had demonstrated their courage in the battle and approved themselves true Romans. Among the few who escaped to Venusia was the Roman consul Vero, a man of no redeeming qualities who did his country great to service as consul. That seems to me very Polybian.
1: It is. And of course, what's he doing here? He's, again, he's stepping outside the
0: historical narrative for a moment and he's analyzing the individual decisions and the character of these leaders. Yeah, he's also pointing out that fortune, of course, the way that fortune works and the way that character works, is that the good d- died, and, and that the bad fled and right. R- were safe. Right.
1: Now, one of his one of his heroes survives can I? And mm-hmm. I think this is this is what naturally leads to book six. And it, y- you have to understand, why does he stop Roman history, the, the narrative? He pauses the narrative for his biggest early digression. Uh, at the end uh, of books three through five, he sort of brought history up to a certain point and he stops. And the big question is, why didn't Rome succumb like so many other right. empires in history? And
0: this is uh, book 3, uh, 118. Very interesting beginning. The result of the battle meant that the war reached exactly the critical point that both sides had expected. Their achievement brought the Carthaginians immediate mastery of almost all the rest of the coastline. And for the Romans, the defeat meant that they immediately gave up any hope of retaining supremacy of Italy and brought them to the point where they were at serious risk of losing their lives and the very soil of their homeland and where they fearfully expected to do so since they anticipated Hannibal's arrival at any moment. It seemed, in fact, as though Fortune were using events to dole out an extra portion of bad luck and pile on the agony. And subsequent, nevertheless, it's like a really important word, the Senate continued to do their best. They tried to alleviate the general gloom. They secured the city, and they did not let fear get the better of them as they debated the crisis, and subsequent events showed that they were right. For although at that point the Romans had undoubtedly been defeated and although their military supremacy had passed into other hands, the peculiar virtues of their constitution and their sound deliberation not only enabled them to regain dominion over Italy and then to beat the Carthaginians, but within a few years, they had made themselves masters of the entire known world. So what
1: we've got going on here is you see a couple of different takes on Fortune, and this is scholars debate. What does he mean by fortune? Well, yeah. in Polybius, I think fortune means a couple of things. It's, first of all, it, it, it's kind of like the medieval wheel of fortune that uh, you see you, when you read a, a medieval manuscript. It, it, it's something that you can't predict. It it deals out death. It deals out life. Uh, it, but then it's also something else. It, so it, it's capricious. But fortune also in Polybius kind of functions and you see this in the reading you just described like fate it's almost it's almost like the christian notion of providence it's a mm-hmm. divine guidance protecting the good sometimes chastising them or it's a reckoning implu- inflicting justice on the evil and only those people who can endure the capricious side of fortune are the ones who will be favored by the providential side of fortune and this is his point is the romans are tough enough they're stable enough, and they're resilient enough, and in the end, Hannibal can't defeat that.
0: Yeah, it's weird. As I was reading the thinking about um, Polybius's fortune, I think of the closest thing I can think is actually Dante's fortune, um, who he did, who is so, sort of in hell, um, but the hoarders and the wasters. Um, Dante in, discusses in Canto 7, um, they believe that they could outrun fortune, and uh, but fortune turns out to be one of God's chosen ministers, and, and uh, there's a preordained manner to the way that luck and misfortune are doled out, uh, which the hoarders and the wasters thought they could uh, avoid, um, and man, that sounds an awful lot like Polybius. Um, yes. Yes. There's, uh, w- of course, we'll get to Machiavelli eventually. But there's a, the way in which, uh, how do you construct uh, your constitution, your society, your culture, in such a way that you can overcome the vicissitudes that fortune will send you? There, there is, as you say, there is, there is a goddess aspect. This is Tyche. There's, a, there's, a, there's sort of a mentality. There's something behind that, the, the choices of luck and of misfortune.
1: Yeah, and and so this is when in book six when he this is where he, he says okay we we've just handled Cana we've got the Greek history up to this point now let's discuss how Rome survives this and it's the constitution that allows them to avoid or at least endure the vicissitudes of fortune. It, so what does
0: he have to say about the constitution? As you say, he's a political scientist and probably right. in the Renaissance, um, the people often thought of him as a writer on the constitution. So what's his analysis of the Roman constitution? We've already talked about the way that his, his culture, his upbringing, has predisposed him to believe that this a mixed constitution, the Republic, is, uh, is the best thing. Um, how does he analyze then the, the constitution of the Roman Republic? Well, this
1: is he. He almost functions like a modern political scientist. He has a theory that he's picked up from Plato and Aristotle and and other Greek thinkers about the mixed government. He, he takes that theory and then he applies it. Now, this is what's really, really novel about uh, Polybius. He applies it to Rome. He says, "Okay, so we've got this idea of what a good constitution looks like. Rome actually embodies it." He says that Rome's characterized by a handful of things. It, Book six is is lengthy. What we have remaining, but he says basically Rome is characterized by civic virtue, by disciplined army, and a balanced government. And you've got to have all of those things. And Book six traces this. It starts off by introducing constitutionalism, introducing. The 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 cycle of governments is very very much like Plato and Aristotle. We go from you know a tyranny to a kingship to a, uh, an aristocracy to an oligarchy, etc. But he says there's a, a seventh form of government. It's not the pure form of government. It's not the corruption of government. And that's the mixed government. That's the balanced government. Now a lot of times today we would say there we go. He's described the system. That's a constitution. But for Polybius, no, no, that's not nearly enough because he also has to talk about the, the mores, the habituation, the things that define the public life of the spirit in Rome. And this is where the, the last part that we have of book six is the most telling. And this is where he describes Roman funerals and how Roman funerals are an example of honoring old men who have sacrificed, suffered, and served the state and how it inspires younger men to want to be that way. So it's not enough just to be disciplined. It's not enough just to have a good system. You have to have the integrity and the character that's hardwired into people from their youth. And elsewhere, Polybius says, if you don't hardwire this, People grow ulcers and you can't treat them and you can't uh, – he calls them ulcers of the soul. Not only can you, can you not treat them, but you also can't leave them alone because then they'll, just, they'll destroy you. He said, no, no. What we have to do is – what Rome had done is they had habituated men from their very uh, young age to love home, to love country, to appreciate honor. And we see this in the Roman constitution as exemplified in a funeral – and in their system of rewards and punishments that is much a much much deeper a much broader vision of what a constitutional order is than what moderns like to think of so
0: um the the funeral being simply that the way they honor the the old or, or what do you, what do you
1: yeah so in a roman funeral it's quite an elaborate ceremony it, i th- I'll briefly mention what a triumph is. A triumph is a kind of military parade after a victory where you would parade the spoils of war, your victories, you'd go through, um, you'd follow a, an appointed path. You'd be honored by all the people. It, it's, it's a distinguished honor for any successful general. You would have select portions of troops that were picked out. These were my bravest men, etc. A funeral kind of looks like a triumph. Hmm. It's when an older, distinguished uh, statesman has died, and everyone gathers for a triumphal sendoff, basically to uh, the afterlife, if you will. And they would even take; they would make waxen busts. We don't have any of them now because they're made of wax. but They take waxen busts uh, of the deceased, and they would carry them. And they would have previous ones of their ancestors, and families would keep these in a cupboard. Uh, They would even open the cupboard with all the masks during special days. And the whole family, the ancestors, uh, the members of the family who died, they would participate uh, in these holidays. So in a funeral, they pull these things out, and then they have grand speeches. They describe the kinds of things that these great men had done, the sacrifices they'd made, the suffering they'd endured. And Polybius says, when the young men see this, they say, I want to be like that. Hmm. I want to be like a Quintus Fabius Maximus. I want to be uh, like a... A, a Scipio Africanus. This, it, and the, the reason that Polybius puts this in his point in history in 216 is because everyone knows what can I brought. Lots of dead, and there are lots of funerals. But it, the funeral is not what Hannibal needs because it's what inspires the living Romans to live up to the reputation of the Romans who've
0: died. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some? So these are the, the cultural guardrails, um, which are necessary to have an actual constitution. Um, do you have any other examples besides? Funerals? I mean, this is a fantastic. I, I never really realized this about the Roman funeral, and it makes the American it makes the, well, a lot more sense out of the uh, of some of the part of the American state funeral. Um, actually, um, what are some other examples of, of cultural guardrails that are are behind the uh, that support the, the Roman constitution?
1: Well, Polybius spends a lot of time talking about the Roman camp mm-hmm. and he compares it or he contrasts it uh, against what he sees as far inferior to the Greek camp. He mm-hmm. says Romans always build it on the same model mm-hmm. and uh, it, it looks almost kind of like a little version of the Republic. You've got the consul's tent in the middle. You've got the legions on either side. You've got the special troops behind. The allies on the edge. You've got a little forum where they dole out rewards and punishments. And if someone, uh, if someone does something that is, uh, if they're asleep on guard duty, there's going to be a trial, summary trial held right there, and then they're going to publicly execute this man in the forum. Uh, that's right. In this little forum that they have created. Now, why do they do this? Because once again, this is the community participating in rewards and punishments. What about rewards? Uh, you know, and he he takes a lot of time when he talks about Scipio Africanus when he or before he's named Africanus, but Scipio, the siege of New Carthage. Again, it's a character study of a famous leader of a Roman uh, in this case, and how he'd inspired his men. He'd calculated uh, how to take the city, and then he inspires his men by offering them rewards. And two men. Said, I was the first one on the top of the wall. You owe me a reward. And in the end, it looks like the men are about to come to blows and Scipio says, okay, let's not go to blows. I'm going to reward both of you. And it's these kind of public rewards that you live out in the camp that uh, are also another one of these uh, guardrails as you describe them. But they happen at the home as well. Mm-hmm. Every home would have uh, the cupboards or any home that could afford it at least would have the cupboards. Uh, they would have a hearth where every individual family is supposed to uh, maintain piety. And piety is really, really important for Polybius because how we treat the divine informs how we treat our fellow men, and it informs how honest we will be and how we will keep our faith. So these things are grafted into every aspect of Roman society as described by Polybius.
0: So to the camp thing, I, I never have thought about this before, but um the camp we should say to to listeners, um I think. I mean, Caesar says this. Others say this. They build a camp every every day, every night when they stop. Yes. They build this thing, and they they're good at it. They uh, I guess they, everyone has a job. They clear the space. They build a, a small wall. Gets more elaborate if they stay there longer. They put right. in. They carry stakes to put in for a an, an abatis uh, to put around the, the the dishes and the walls. And so they build that every night. Um, put up their tents as a forum tent for the general, the legate or the consul. They're creating a little Rome every night. Yes. That's a very powerful way of mastering space. Um, It's not as if they're camping, the Roman army is camping every night on a plane. Um, They're camping in lots of irregular places. Right. Camps always knows there always is a rock right underneath you um, when you try to go to sleep. Um, Imagine what happens when you try to put in a a town of 5,000, which is what a, that I guess they're really building for a legion. Right. Um, they're putting Rome everywhere that Rome goes. They they put Rome there. They take the space over for the Republic. They make the space behave the way the Republic says it should. There should be a forum. There should be a, a center of political power, um, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you could compare this to if you go to. Uh, an army camp today, so a forward operating base, for example, the United States. Uh, It's interesting because one of the things I remember when I, you know, one of the first fobs that we landed at in Afghanistan was it looked like a little version of America? Why did it look like a little version of America? Well, because there were McDonald's and there was a <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know. And you know what does that say about what matters to Americans? I think it says you know a lot, uh, both the good and the bad, but the things that that are important. So you you see this today as well in some pretty different ways. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Let's uh, get to that big question in a way we've already been addressing it. But how did that little city end up conquering the world? That's his big question. What's his thesis? What's his response to that question? Well, and like like you
1: said, I, I think we've I think we've discussed this, but let me elaborate yeah, a little more put on it. Let's put a bow on it. Yeah, they <laughs> quite simply they know how to handle misfortune better than anyone else. Hmm. <laughs> they also have a public life of the spirit, a system of habituating young men to being good citizens and young women to being good matrifamilias, mothers of the household and training their boys better than anyone else out there. But something else that's really, really important, uh, Polybius has a sense – of empathy and compassion, you're thinking, what a classical historian is talking about empathy and compassion, but this is really important with the way that he describes Rome in its rise to power and Rome that he's critical of after it has acquired power, and what uh, this memory, or this uh, this compassion stems from, is historical memory, and this is why Polybius thinks history, reading history, is so important. A people must remember where they've come from, what their humble origins are. You'd ask this question by starting off with the little city that ends up conquering the world. You cannot forget you have been the little city hmm. because if you remember your humble origins, you will be gracious to those that you have conquered. And in the mouths of both Scipio Africanus and Aemilius Paulus, he put some really great statements talking about how fortune vacillates and how we have to be kind to those that we have defeated because someday that might be us. And if, if a people has this sort of historical memory and can understand their own humble origins, they could look at people who have been defeated, who want to have dignity and honor, and they can treat them well. And Polybius says Rome, a lot of times, treats people really well when they're victorious. And he talks about this. He, he describes this when he, when he introduces the whole story of uh, Flamininus and the conquest of the Greeks when they defeat Philip V uh, for the first time in the – or I really should say the second time in the Second Macedonian War – and how Flamininus is gracious to the Greeks. Now, there's some—he's probably painting things a little rosy here, but uh, or he's whitewashing a little bit here. But it, he's he's correctly identified how Rome can be very, very uh, compassionate and have empathy for those that suffer. When they lose that empathy, when they lose the historical memory, when they, then they lose their discipline, and then they bec- they give in to something very different. They're not humble, and instead they give in to hubris.
0: So is Polybius then a moralist, or is he a realist? Well, I have
1: to preface any of my own thoughts about this with at least a a concession that this is hotly debated. (laughs) Um, So I say this because two of the greatest scholars on Polybius disagree. The most famous... um, being Wallbank, so Wallbank wrote this this fantastic uh, three volume, uh, unmatched commentary on Polybius, very 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 good, and he basically says no, uh, Polybius is realist and uh, he's not a moralist, but to do this, and this is where Art Eckstein disagrees he has to, uh, Wallbank has to sort of dismiss or ignore a lot of the statements in Polybius. And this is why you see a trend moving in the other direction for Polybius that, no, no, he de- believes deeply in morality. He believes deeply in integrity uh, and good character. And you see this, oh my goodness, it's throughout every single page. He critiques people for drunkenness. He critiques people for um. But for incontinence, he critiques people uh, who uh, have courage, but they don't have wisdom. All the kinds of classical virtues that you would read about in Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, the skeptics, the cynics debating. He's engaging these issues and he's applying them to statesmen. What I think has actually happened in this debate is I think there's more of a modern reading. And this, I think, starts with Machiavelli Mm. that wants to see history and wants to see great actors in terms of raw power politics. And so when these kinds of people pick up, when that perspective picks up Polybius, they read into it something that isn't there. Instead, what you've got, and this is my opinion of Polybius, is a deeply moral person who's obsessed with uplifting paragons of statesmanship by men who are honest, who are pious, who have courage, who are honorable, and who are humble. These are moral qualities. But Polybius is practical. He says history exists to teach us how to live here, to behave here. And so he's got to apply those in the real world. So
0: he's a, a moral realist. Yeah. Or, or would, a realist moralist. Yeah, or, sure. Um, speaking of Machiavelli, I was <laughs> – as early as book one, chapter nine, he tells the story of Huron II and how he came to power in Syracuse. And I just know that I've read this in The Prince and I, I can't find it immediately. But how uh, he was threatened by mercenaries. Uh, who were unruly, which there's a great Machiavellian theme right there. Um, And what he did was he had the mercenaries go forward ahead of the citizen soldiers and let them be massacred. And then when the mercenaries were being run down, he withdrew safely back to Syracuse with the citizen contingents. In this efficient fashion, he achieved his objective and purged the army of its disruptive and mutinous elements. He then recruited a substantial corps of mercenaries of his own choosing and proceeded to rule in perfect safety. That's a a sentence that could come right out of the prince. (laughs) Right, right. And I think it's easy to
1: to look at that and say, "Wow, well, gosh, clearly, I mean, this plebeius is obsessed with real politique. He he lifts up Hiero as one of his exemplars. He especially contrasts him to, I think, it's his grandson Hieronymus, yeah. who has none of the the virtues. But if we look at a rounded out character of Hiero, the kinds of virtues that. He uplifts. He definitely applies to Hiero. But in some ways, if you look at that anecdote that you just cited, what is Polybius doing? Well, he's engaging fortune and fate. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening to these mercenaries who are no longer performing the purpose that they were supposed to perform, who are now acting viciously to the state that they're supp- they've are they been hired to protect? Well, they get their just desserts. And what Hiero is doing is he's the person who facilitates what is their just desserts. And there's a kind of – necessary prudence that is virtuous in heroes doing that uh, these are the kinds of tough decisions that statesmen have to have and you can't pull away from tough decisions if you're a practical historian but you also can't excuse
0: bad behavior mm-hmm. um, we' I think uh, sort of answered this question already um, but some people mostly I suspec—I suspect lovers of Herodotus, find Polybius boring. What would you say to that?
1: I'll be sympathetic when I start <laughs> off with, uh, because I have a, a personal appreciation for him. Uh, but um, I can understand this for, for a couple of reasons. Because uh, Polybius, first of all, he is austere. He's pretty straightforward. His writing is, is unadored. Uh, second of all, he's complicated. Now, Plebeius knows that he's complicated because he's trying to do universal history. He's got to explain how all the different independent histories, all the different states have now intersected and out of this intersections, which is obviously quite complex, one world power emerges. So you're going to get lost in a lot of figures, a lot of characters, uh, a, a lot of notables, uh, the places you don't know. The modern reader doesn't know who Aratus is. He doesn't know where Sikyon is. He's not sure where, what the difference is between Arcadia and Acarnania. But uh, this is made worse by the fact that Plebeus is fragmentary. So when we get to the later books, he's just hard to read because we don't have the whole story. It'd be like watching a TV show that's a serial TV show, uh, except you you only have you know five of the last 20 episodes. Well, it just wouldn't be very pleasant to watch. Okay. So I'll concede that. But the fact of the matter is, Plebeus isn't boring. He's fantastic. And here's <laughs> why he's fantastic. First of all, he's interdisciplinary and he's obsessed with global history. We have this idea that is captivating a lot of historians, and it has its point, but it's limited that you have to have your little niche, and in this little niche, you stay and you become an expert in this little thing. The problem is, then history doesn't matter anymore. That's where, if we just stay and, you know, uh, Poetical treatises from the English Civil War, the years 1644 hey to 1647, <laughs> right? There's a place for that. There's a place for that. But it has to inform a broader uh, perspective where you've got the historian who can tie all of these things together and explain the grand narrative. Otherwise, and this is what Polybius says, it's like looking at dead body parts of an animal. And then thinking you can actually understand how it moved, what it was like. What do we understand better? Well, Polybius says, if you are like... The non-universal historian, you're kind of like a paleontologist who doesn't know enough about dinosaurs compared to a zoologist who can tell you a lot about a lion. Okay, so he's interdisciplinary, he's universal, but he's also great for gripping stories and for analyzing human behavior. He takes a statesman and he'll pause a narrative of a statesman and say, okay, what was the temperament that informed him to do this? What do we think of his decision making? What are the real causes and what are the mere pretexts behind his decisions? These kinds of nuggets are throughout Polybius. And for anyone who takes the time to actually sit down and read through it, they will uncover these and they'll learn a lot, not merely about how great power politics occurs, but also how
0: to live their lives and be leaders in their own way and their own circles. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the the uh, larger style, which we might call the, the macro style of Polybius. I suspect... Um, There's a lot more typology at work than I realize. I I would have to sit down with it again uh, really hard. Um, There's also, um, he says out loud, he writes how much care he gives to transitions. And he said, I'm obsessed with transitions in my writing and others, and uh, he's really good at the transition. Uh, And he thinks a lot about how to do that. Um, So he is really, I, I think he's an interesting writer. It's true. He will tell you the difference between, say, a Iberian sword and a Celtic sword as he's going into the battle. Can I, some of us appreciate that, but also there's a reason for that. He's trying to explain, uh, how that makes a difference in tactics and how those tactics will change the, the battle and how those tactics can't change the direction of fortune. Um, right. To do that, he has to go and talk about the difference in points between Iberian and Celtic uh, swords, uh, which, you know, okay. He's, he's comprehensive. Um, He also influenced you. Could we conclude that? And and You've talked about this a little bit in our last conversation, but I I find this an endlessly interesting uh, topic is how Steele Brand was influenced by Polybius to do crazy things uh, by graduate student standards.
1: Well, I don't feel like I've done crazy things for quite some time, Uh, (laughs) but how he influenced me. Let me just read a passage from Polybius. It's one of my favorite passages. Okay. And then let me just talk about what it has meant to me. So this is in book 12, uh, 28. The dignity of history demands such a man. Plato, as we know, tells us that human affairs will go well when either philosophers become kings or kings study philosophy. And I would say that it would be well with history, either when men of action undertake to write history, not as now happens in a perfunctory manner, but when the belief that this is a most necessary and a most noble thing they apply themselves all through their life to it with undivided attention, or when would-be authors regard a training in actual affairs as necessary for writing history. So, what this has meant to me is that, first of all, from the beginning that I got my graduate degrees, uh, I had to do as wide—I had to go as wide as possible, which is not the way to be. Too terribly successful in academia for understandable reasons. I got a theology degree. I got a degree in biblical studies. I majored in political science and history. Um, I got an interdisciplinary PhD. And at the end of all of that, I said, good heavens. I had read Polybius. He, he taunted me for 10 years uh, saying that, hey, if you haven't actually experienced war, you really can't do this business of being a historian. So I joined the army uh, a month after I defended my dissertation. actually got my I was awarded my PhD, I think, when I was on a firing range of basic training. <laughs> and I learned so much more. in a, it was like a, an extended program in 13 weeks of basic training than I probably would have from years of study. And I, Polybius was right. And so what that means is, is the historian has to be restless. He can't be content to sit in the library or just in front of his computer or stay in the classroom. And this is something that haunts me. My wife always hates it when I pick up Polybius because she's afraid I may want to go do something uh, crazy. And I, I, So it's been 10 years almost, uh, eight years since I got out of the army, and I feel I'm getting restless again. I don't know what that will lead to, but I think that's what Polybius is supposed he's supposed to demand a lot of us. He wants us to know – He wants us to be uncomfortable, not merely in not knowing as much as you can about one little area, but about knowing as much as you can, as broadly as you can about human nature. And he wants you to experience, experience, experience. And
0: then you might have something wise to say. Well, my guest today has been Steele Brand. He's, among other things, author of Killing for the Republic, Citizen Soldiers, and the Roman Way of War. Steele, thanks as always for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks a lot, Al. It's been great